Welcome to the All People Podcast, where we talk all people all the time. I'm your host, Elisa Southall. My goal is to improve Canada and employee experiences as well as company cultures throughout U.S. employers. We do this by leading with empathy, diversity, inclusion, equality, teamwork, and transparency. Come on this journey with me. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to an episode of All People Podcast, where we talk all people all the time. I am your host, Elisa Southall, and I am here today with Kyle Kronk. Kyle Kronk, um, you guys may have seen him. He is uh, part of the Radical Fucking Leadership, and he, uh, he founded that, um, talks a lot about it, and he also works for his local YMCA. Um, so, Kyle, it's nice to have you. Tell us a little bit more about what you do. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm so fired up to be here. It's eight o'clock in the morning on a Friday. I'm really jazzed. Uh, yeah, so I do a lot of different things. Uh, I'm the president of, a, as you said, of a YMCA locally in Olympia, Washington. I've been with the Y pretty much my whole life. I started working for the Y as a volunteer summer camp counselor. And uh, somebody said, hey, or I told somebody that I wanted to be a teacher at one point. And they said, well, you should figure out if you like kids. And I, and I thought that was fantastic advice. And so uh, this guy got me to go to this wonderful camp in the San Juan Islands. So I spent my uh, whole high school career up there, my whole uh, college career uh, working with kids and uh, doing leadership development stuff, even at a when I was a young, like 15, 16, 17-year-old. And, uh, you know, there was just a magic, a magic of camp. I mean, it's, it's a place where, um, you know, people can come together and they don't know each other. And by, you know, within literally hours, they're like best friends. And then, uh, so it's just a magical, it was a magical place. And I really never left the Y. I just kept working for the Y through high school, uh, various summer camp jobs, and then um, started working uh, professionally with teenagers and uh, doing leadership development stuff, and then just progressively got more and more responsibility, uh, working with volunteers, working with staff, supervising people, raising money. And so as you do all those things in the Y, you just get, you get more responsibility, different job titles. Finally, I became president of a YMCA back in 2009. I've been a president of a YMCA since then, two different Ys. One was a turnaround sort of situation. The one I'm in now is is thriving. Uh, even if you <laughs> factor in COVID, COVID, that would not be the time to, to run a Y. That's a really hard job. Um, so then we'll talk about radical fucking leadership in another question, I guess. But that's me. I've, uh, I'm a dad. I'm a, I, I have three kids, three high school age boys. Um, I ride mountain bikes. I play guitar. I brew beer. I wear a beard. <laughs> Awesome. You're such a well-rounded person. And, you know, so I want to, I want to talk about that, that radical fucking leadership idea. You know, your whole platform is building the th these exceptional leaders, right? Yeah. And you, you call out this sort of method called raising the bar, which is belonging, achievement, and relationship. Can you tell us a little bit more about that raising the bar mindset? Yeah, for sure. So it's funny, I was writing a LinkedIn post this morning and I was talking about strategy execution and really any any entity that's going to uh, execute on their strategy, it really has nothing to do with strategy at all. It has to do with the people that are going to execute the strategy. And if you don't invest in the people and if 
then your strategy is never going to go where it could. I mean, you might hit some things, but you're not going to knock it out of the park, so to, so to speak. Um, there's there was also these nine dimensions of well-being that were uncovered for me. They were uncovered way back in like I want to say maybe 2007 to 2010, somewhere in there. And there was this company that was looking at how YMCA members, what makes them stay. And so they had these nine, nine things on this wheel and three of them kept rising, rising to the top and it was belonging achievement relationships. And so I started studying that even more. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff on all of that. I mean, the achievement thing is really about esteem. You know, people are not coming whether they're joining the Y or whether they're coming to uh, work uh, for any entity, I mean, people don't show up to do a bad job. I mean, people want to excel. They want to achieve. They want to win. They want to do the thing, whatever the thing is that they're doing, they want to do it well. And so uh, we've, I've coined this thing over the course of my, uh, since I've been a CEO for now 16 years, um, we call this, all those, uh, when we celebrate anything, small to really huge things, um, we've got cowbells. I'm a big cowbell guy, so I bring a cowbell pretty much everywhere I go. I didn't bring one today, but but I, they're all over this office. Um, so we're always, you know, trying to make it so people feel good about the contribution that they're making because that's part of it. And then belonging, um, and back to the radical fucking leadership. We'll get into that in a, in a second. But the genesis of that is really that currently leaders are not taking the stand that they need to take, in my opinion, uh, for clear matters of right and wrong. So whether it's Black Lives Matter, well, it's whether it's LGBTQIA, whether it's, you know, whatever marginalized, you know, as, as more people are marginalized and more oppression is happening, we need leaders, especially white, male, cisgendered leaders to do a better fucking job. And they're not. And they're worried about, you know, in, in my case, um, you know, people that are running YMCAs that are white, that are men. Um, they're worried that they're going to lose donors. They're worried they're going to lose board members. They're worried they're going to lose members. At some point, you got to take a stand. And that's what radical fucking leadership is all about. And then so through that lens of belonging achievement raising the bar you know my anti what i've done over the last i don't know probably five or six years is is integrating an anti-racism agenda into my leadership philosophy i i am not a dei or anti-racism expert i am definitely on a learning journey and every day i learn more and more and more and more and it gets me uh, to take even a, a broader, bolder stand in what it is that we're standing for, which is, I mean, why work? I've, I always say this is, you know, why work is about people and leadership is about people and people are messy, really messy. <laughs> and so yeah. we have to, we have to do something different. And so that's where radical fucking leadership came from. It was like, Hey, somebody has got to take a stand and you know, I'm, I'm going to start. Yeah. And, and I give you kudos for that. I mean, I know when I have those conversations with white male cis leaders, right. It sometimes can be sort of a, a bust to their ego, right. They're like, you know, it's, it's, they get defensive, right. Sometimes when you're talking about it, it's like, 
I need you to, I need you to see like, this is more than you, right? This is like, this is a bigger concept, you know? Yeah. And the fact that you're on this journey of like, how can I be an ally? How can I shout this from the rooftops? How can I wear it like a billboard, right? How can I get this message out there um, is incredible. And I know that those communities would appreciate that approach, but I know that you're doing it for more than just their appreciation. You're doing it for their quality piece of it. And like, how do we just, you know, get them to, to have this, you know, equality and to, to raise that bar, right. To have that belonging in their workplace. Absolutely. Um, Last night, we just, uh, in our, every year we raise money to support people that can't afford the full cost of YMCA services. And we had a big victory celebration last night. And one of the things that I had said in my little speech, because we talk about um, raising the bar within our why, it's kind of our cultural thing, like I was talking about. And, uh, and it really comes down to the idea that, every, you know, we fundamentally believe that everybody should thrive. Everybody should feel like they belong. Everybody should be able to achieve. Everybody should have quality, strong relationships. And when you're marginalized and you're othered, you're, you're starting at a, at a deficit. The other thing that I say about radical fucking leadership, because I do, you know, leadership coaching, we talk about one of the, one of the things that I'm a big believer in, one of the tenets of radical fucking leadership is about guiding principles. And one of the guys, I have a whole bunch of guiding principles through radical fucking leadership. One is no bullshit. One is it's anti-racist as fuck. The other one, or one of the other ones, is um, an abundance mindset. We need to live in abundance, not in a deficit. And so we're, we're trying to build that muscle better, I guess is how I would say that. That's awesome. And, you know, to you and all the listeners out there, I just finished listening to an audio book by a woman named Deepa Prashathaman. Um, and she wrote an, a book called um, The First, The Few, The Only, How women of color can redefine power in corporate America. Um, and it was a really cool book. And you got to hear the experiences of actual women of color who are either the first, the few, or the only women of color in their organizations, which is an incredible thing to think about. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things. So when, when I go back and I think when people ask me like, why am I doing this or why do I take the stand that I take? And it really is from a perspective of empathy. We, uh, so we, we, the why, generally speaking, is a pretty white dominated male, especially at the top sort of situation. And, and that's true for our, our boards as well. So when you think about board of directors or board of trustees, they're generally white males. And when you, when you try to diversify, so first of all, we also know there's a ton of studies that say diverse teams outperform homogenous teams by like 35%. I mean, it's, it's incredible what the statistics say and what the return on that investment would be in corporate America. So that's one fact. And people look past those facts and say, you know, I don't know what they, how they rationalize that, but, but they do. So anyway, we started to diversify our board and one of the, back to this whole concept, at some point, somebody has to be first some person of color has to come into an all white space. And the more and more I sat with that realization to feel what that feels like to that, I'm thinking of one person in particular, to what that feels like to this person. Every single day, every single encounter, 
that it, where society is essentially telling this person, you don't belong everywhere. And so it's that level of empathy that I try to ground myself in to say, this is how we're going to change our culture. This is what we're going to be about. Yeah. And, and I was reading it just like you were talking about, I mean, with that empathy lens of like, they, like you said, they have to sit in rooms where, you know, it's like constantly, you just feel like you don't belong there. Right. right? Um, and that leads me, I mean, you and I have had a conversation about representation and, and, you know, we talk about how, you know, having representation of people for people of color or women or whatever those marginalized LGBTQIA groups, right. Whatever those marginalized groups are is essential for other people in the organization to see like that can be me or I can do that or I can be there. And you talked about an experience that you had sort of in the why where that was, you know, that was the case. Yeah. And I didn't, I, I guess I, you know, my, like I said, I'm on a journey, so I'm always learning. And back when I first started um, working at the Y professionally, I was I was hired in what was traditionally called the African American YMCA of a YMCA in Seattle. And so I was hired there to work with kids. And in this particular setting, you know, most of the kids were black. And back then, I mean, I was probably what 24, 25, or something like that. And back then I thought, you know. I'd been working with kids at this point for 15 years, you know, back when I was, um, you know, a, a young kid myself. And I and I was really good at working with kids. I mean, kids loved me. They were all, I was a kid magnet. I could I could do things in a parking lot and kids would love it. It was amazing. And then. So I think when I go to this place as a professional youth worker, I think, of course, I can work with kids. Doesn't matter what doesn't matter if they're black, doesn't matter if they're white, doesn't matter if they're gay. I mean, it just doesn't matter. But, you know, my learn obviously I, I have evolved my thinking a lot since then, that representation totally matters. Um, it's not that we didn't have a bad time. It's not that I didn't relate to kids. I mean, I worked there for seven years and did, you know, really good things. But um, I could see, you know, people were upset that I got the job. Like, why is a white guy working with our black kids? Yeah. So, I mean, I get it. Yeah. Um, and I know in in your community spotlight that you filled out for for our newsletter, right? You talked about how you have frustration with the leadership movement and primarily those like white male leaders. Um, and so can you tell us a little bit more about that when you talk about like with that leadership movement, right? Can you tell me just a little bit more about what frustrates you the most about that? Like how I know you talked about raising the bar and, and radical fucking leadership, but you know, just that piece in general. I, I think we mistake. I think in the, you know, when I, when I see whoever is called a leadership guru or, or people that have a, a significant, I have a, you know, a small following, but I'm talking, you know, leadership people that have written, you know, multiple books, you know, a hundred thousand followers. And they continue to talk about what I would consider management competencies. So like time management, decision-making, problem-solving, all those sorts of things, those, those things are true. It's not like they're not, they're not needed. You need them. But the foundational part of the belonging achievement relationships isn't solid enough to then build on those other, to then take those and cascade on all of those sorts of skills. And for me, people are not saying what the big problem is and when you think about 
the bigger, you know, we're, we're in corporate America, you're prioritizing, you know, profit over people. Even in, in nonprofit America, there's a little bit of that as well. It, it doesn't come across like that, it, it, but, but we're using sometimes the marginalized and oppressed communities to then raise money and do other things. So it is a very complex sort of thing to unravel. I mean, racism is baked into everything, as you know, and it's, and it's systemic. It's institutional, it's organizational, it's individual, and it's, and it's systemic. And so there's this one group of uh, a training entity called uh, the People's Institute for uh, Survival and Healing, I think is what the full name is. And they're amazing. And, and so I kind of use their principles and, and their theory is that, you know, racism was constructed so it can be destructed and undone. But it's a systemic approach that you need to take to then unravel it. And so that's kind of what we have that so where I would come back to the leadership thing and where I think people have um, not paid attention they're because of the privilege that they have, they can just decide not to. And then society right now is valuing, you know, profit. Right. Yeah. And I was having a, a conversation even with my own family members about like unconscious bias and how that plays a part in, sure. you know, in, in our lives. Right. And we don't even realize that that's why they call it unconscious bias. Right. And, you know, talking about where we grew up and, and how <clears throat> the way that we grew up and the places we grow up and, and those types of things shape our beliefs without us really knowing it. And we have Ooh. to, we have to then sort of like, you know, like reprogram ourselves to say like, okay, why do I, why am I thinking this? And how do I, how do I change my way of thinking? Or how do I expand my way of thinking? Um, and so that for me, like that's been, you know, I'm trying to teach that to the people in my family who don't, you know, who haven't grasped some of those concepts yet. Woo! So <laughs> first of all, that's a bold step to jump into the family conversation. And then secondly, the thing that I've found, at least for me is, so in the Pacific Northwest, it is not the most diverse place on the planet. Um, and so to be in multicultural settings, I have to really work at it. And I have to be, because redlining and all, all the systems that create, you know, where I live is pretty white. So I have to be conscious to be in places where other people don't look like me. And th so I do that. That's one of the things I do. The other thing that I do is I read a ton and I'm connected to a ton of people in my case on LinkedIn um, to get the, that other perspective. Um, I mean, that's where I get my education and my proximity. Proximity matters um, in a big way. It does. And one of the things I'll share. So I had um, Emily Morash and she was on episode um three, I think it was of my podcast. And she does empathy and mindful communication. She talks a lot about that. And mm -hmm. one of the things that she talked about was, you know, empathy isn't walking in somebody's shoes. And she talked about how, you know, I, I can't walk in the shoes of a, of a black woman or a black man or a, you know, a transgender individual, right? I, I can't. Right. And so it's not about walking in their shoes. It's accepting, it's accepting their experiences and their their, you know, their truth, right. It's accepting it as truth and not trying to live their experience and just, you know, going that way. And so I think that we need to sort of look at empathy from that approach rather than saying, Oh, let me walk in your shoes. Right. Yeah. The first, one of the first, I wrote a post a, a while ago that had 
some decent traction in the very first part of it. Um, the first is commit, and the second is believe black people. Wow, that's pretty powerful. Um, yeah. Because their their experiences are real, right? I mean, for we, sure. We, you know, it, it's just so hard to. And the, the thing, that, and yeah. so back back to that boardroom idea, and and what I didn't do, you know, I caused a lot of harm in in that whole process because what I didn't understand then that I now know, and this is what I teach other other boards when they think about diversifying, is that there's a tremendous amount of scaffolding that has to happen, foundational work that white people need to do, just with white people, so that they minimize the amount of harm that they're about to cause when they start diversifying their boards. Um, and one of that, I mean, the, so the, the believing of the black people concept is the idea that you, you're going to hear things that are going to sound not true. They're because they're so different than, because their experience is so different than my experience that my first reaction or people's first reaction is like, that can't be true. So you're at, so already we're at this, you know, defensive posture with this person that is hurting, that has been othered. And now you're just piling on the more harm, the more harm, the more harm. And that really played out in my boardroom. I mean, mm. I had some wild, wild board meetings. I mean, board meetings that prior to 20, maybe 2018, maybe late 2017, we started our divers diversification idea. And knowing that we would be a better why if we had different voices at the table and we would expand our impact because right now we're only, or back then we were only serving a subset of the market, but now we have way more people that are connected to our YMCA than they ever have been. And so just thinking about how you're going to do that is, is important. So that, that's also what radical fucking leadership does. You know, I do leadership stuff around belonging, achievement, relationships and, and building cultures and, and understanding how you do the co-creation process. And that really is what creates the belonging. And then um, we do a lot of stuff on equitable governance. So that's a new kind of concept. There isn't much um, writing on how boards would govern with an equitable lens. And so that goes back to those uh, leadership guiding principles that I was mentioning. Um, so there's just a lot, a lot of different things that go on. And again, I'm not the DEI expert. I am an expert in creating cultures that are about belonging, achievement, and relationships. Yeah, one thing that stood out for me is in that book I was telling you about, you know, they talk about aggressions, macroaggressions, microaggressions, right? Um, inactions that are that occur in the workplace for mm. these women of color. And, you know, you, I think as white people and even white men, right, we don't, sometimes we don't even realize like other people in the room who are making a comment that might be a microaggression, right, it has an impact as you were talking about, right. And so we have to then stand up and say like, no, no, no this, this is not, we're not having this, like, we're not doing this right now. You know what I mean? Like, you have to understand wh why your comment was not appropriate. And then we have to deal with how to, you know, figure out how to move forward with that. Totally. I, I can't agree more with that. I mean, it's, I like the way that you said a, a microaggression can be an inaction, you know, mm -hmm. hearing something and not saying something. It's like that. What's the airport thing where they say, you know, if you see something, say something. Right. 
Swan, you even had, you know, you have had a couple of shirts that are around, you know, that mindset. I know you're wearing a shirt today, but like you told me one that you have that's white silence is violence, right? And, and we can't be silent about this stuff. And even in all of your community spotlight stuff you were giving me, I mean, you, you brought up a, a quote by Desmond Tutu, right? You've had all this stuff where you're like, we can't sit and be silent. That's not helping. Yeah. yeah if you, if I, I think that quote was about, you know, if, if you're silent, you're essentially taking the side of the oppressor. Mm-hmm. And, and that goes back to my complicity. You know, I, I'm part of the problem as a white male with a tremendous amount of privilege if I don't say something, then I am even more part of the problem. I'm perpetuating the racist construct that we live in. And so I said a while ago, I don't even know when I made this commitment. I, like I said, I, I've done a lot of different leadership things. And uh, back in uh, 2009, I took a, a immersive leadership training thing that was like, you know, five days in a row and you stayed the night and you did all this interpersonal work. And one of the things that one of the activities they had is take out a piece of paper and draw a line down the middle of it and said on the left side, put the things that you uh, are for. And on the right side, put the things that you're against. And the very top thing, this is back in 2009. I have no idea why I said this back then, but on the top right part of my paper, it says the thing that I'm against is racism. So you know, back in 2009, things were running in my head, like, because I could tell, I knew that, and and maybe this is that body, weird body experience, like, I knew that things weren't right. Yeah. I can feel it. You can feel it. Even if you're a white person, racism is impacting you. And it's negatively impacting you. It, it's kind of like a disease. I was talking to somebody last night at that board, at that thing where we were celebrating our victory. It's like, Somebody was saying, uh, recounting this experience when they were a, a younger person, like high school, where their parent was explaining to them that they couldn't date outside their race. And, and he was explaining the, the feeling. So he was a white person and he was explaining how that impacted him like that. That was toxic. That was traumatic. That was a thing that hurt him. And, and then set him back in his development over, you know, I don't even know how long. I mean, he's a grown, grown man today. But it's so the, this idea that racism, you know, doesn't impact white people is false as well. Right. We don't talk much about that, but white people need to heal. And then there's the co-liberation and the co-healing together. Um, we do need to focus more on healing. And I think that there's a, a point of raising the bar, the belonging achievement relationship concept that it, you can get into a relationship and be deeply connected with somebody where you, you then start that healing process. And that's a, you know, I, again, I'm not a therapist or an expert on that, but I mean, there's a, there's a lot to be said about strong, healthy relationships that are where you can really sit with somebody else's pain and that that humility and that willingness to stand with them in the gaps. Mm, yeah, that's that's where the tough work comes in, right? Um, but it should it shouldn't be tough, right? That's the part that's like really hard is like it, right. that should be just like a human a part where we're human, right? And we just do it, but it's just oh, yeah. so hard, you know? Somebody said uh, you know, in some of the comments that people make on posts that I have uh, they, they said, uh, you know, when, 
because I'm talking about this, you know, raising them the bar. And it's and it's such a simple concept. But when somebody said to me, you know, when is that not going to be radical? When is that going to be regular? And I think that that's a great, you know, sort of uh, another tagline is like from radical to regular. I mean, that's what you know that you're moving the bar when when something, something is more regular. It's like, yeah, let's be more human. When like when Kyle's business goes from like radical fucking leadership to like regular fucking leadership. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Yeah. I thought that was great when they said that. Well, and, and going back to your shirts, right? So I, I know like the other day, I think it was either today or yesterday, you made a post that was like, you had a shirt that said black women make the world go round. You have the Black Lives Matter shirt on today. You have the one that's white silence is violence. I know you have a ton of these, right? Are these are being given to you from what I understand from certain places. Can you just share a couple of those in case our listeners want to go get them? Yeah, for sure. So it's really about supporting black or brown owned businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, so one person has given me these shirts and where that person gets them, I, I don't know all the places, but um, we are definitely uh, into supporting black and brown owned, um, specifically women of color businesses. But uh, one of them is Mahogany Mommies. The other one is Crive, K-R-I-V-E. So you could go there. Um, hopefully someday this person will will uh, tell me where, where they got the shirts and then I'll, I'll let other people know. Because, I mean, I do get a lot of uh, people saying, like, where do you get those shirts? Yeah, well, then you could drop them on the post, right? When you make your post, you could just Absolutely. put the link to go order them, right? I mean, that would be yeah. ideal. And, the, and we've you know, the person started giving me the shirts a while ago and I, I wear them. I wear them at work. I'm at work right now. I wear them in, in the community. I wear them tonight. There's going to be a big chamber event that I'll have a shirt on. It's in it's, and I'm not doing it to promote myself. I'm doing it again to promote the concept of whatever the shirt happens to say and, and taking a stand, but it's not, it, it, it's way easier today than it was when I first started, but there were times, and this goes back to that concept of taking a stand, and what does it really mean about harm, safety, comfort, all those sorts of things. So as a white guy, I mean, shit, I can do pretty much anything that I want, when I want, where I want, how I want, nobody tells me what to do. So I, and that's a, that, that level of privilege is, is kind of what is moving me to do what I am doing. But um, when I first had a, I don't know what shirt I was wearing, but I was, I was wearing one of the shirts that I was getting ready to go to our, my local grocery store. And it's predominantly white because of red lining, not a lot of brown people in there. And if there are, they're usually working at the store. And so I, I get ready to get out of my car and I, and I have this wave of anxiety come over me. I start sweating. I can tell that my face flushes. And I think when I walk in here, could I be harmed? And I thought for a minute, maybe. But then I thought even more, like, what would somebody really do? And then so just that concept that I could decide to turn it on or off and I could decide whether I want to be bold or not. Again, the privilege is just dripping off. So I had. So again, I, I made the choice that I was not going to put on my coat. I was going to wear the shirt. 
I was going to go in and be bold and take a stand and let whatever happened happen. And, so, and white people get confused. We're doing a thing at our board. Um, I'll, I'll tell you this semi-funny story. So again, back to when we were diversifying our board, um, you know, our board was again, white and they were new to the work. We didn't do a lot of the scaffolding that I would do today. And so we were coming at the board with a tremendous amount of anti-racism work, not DEI, not DEIJ, not, you know, it was, it was full on anti-racism, white, we're going to destruct white supremacy culture. And we're using those terms. And we, we tied, you know, rightly so we tied capitalism as the root cause to racism. And that sent a whole bunch of people in a tizzy. So long story short, <laughs> we were trying to figure out like every time that we would bring up white supremacy cultural norms, which there's like, I don't know, 15 or 19 thing, uh, characteristics. And, it and they'd be playing out in front of us. And it was obvious. It was obvious to, the, to pretty much anybody except some of the, the non-educated um, white people at the time. And uh, so, so one of my colleagues, my board colleague who runs our social justice committee or our anti-racism committee, we're you know, brainstorming in my office one day and I, and I happened to say, you know, racism work is, is obviously not linear. It's, it's this, it's like a web, it's like a big maze. And so sometimes you're taking steps forward, sometimes you get bumped sideways, sometimes you take total steps back. And I, I told the person, I said, it reminds me of the game Shoots and Ladders. And so we created, and just last week, we created a game called Oh Shoots. And it is the Shoots and Ladders board game with, in our case, it ha when you spin the spinner, um, if you land on a shoot, you get a card and the card pulls up as a white supremacy cultural norm in this case, right to comfort. And then at the next board meeting, we do an hour presentation on what right to comfort is and how you dismantle it. And so the April board meeting is gonna be the first time that we do, and in this case, it's gonna be right to comfort. So, and then if you land on a ladder, in our case, cause we have been doing anti-racism work for quite a bit. If you land on a ladder, the card that it turns up is uh, something that we've done well. So this goes into the achievement bucket. We can then, you know, celebrate our success. Like in our case, we, one of the things that we've done is that we've taken our foundational documents, our bylaws, and changed the way that the executive committee is formed so that never again can it all be white-led. So for us, that's a victory. And so that's we would, impressive. yeah, so we would celebrate that and we would, you know, love on each other and feel good and then commit to doing the work. So anyway, this, this, oh, shoots game is hilarious. And we did it. And ironically, we did it because of the right to comfort that our white board members couldn't, couldn't deal with every time that we said white supremacy culture. So now we just roll the dice and a thing like right to comfort comes up and we, and then we do a, and then the board members are the ones that are teaching the other board members how to you know, about the topic. So we'll see that's, how it goes. That's really interesting. And, and I think it ties well to your point where you're talking about the supermarket, right? You know, going back to that, what I, what I think really stood out for me was, 
you know, you're talking about, oh, I have the ability to turn off, like turn this off and make myself feel more comfortable, or I have the ability to like leave it on and have a little bit of uncomfortability. Mm-hmm. People that are oppressed in marginalized communities can't turn it off. It doesn't turn off. Right. And and so it's like the fact that you were saying, like, you're like, I'm dripping in white privilege because I can just say, ah, I want it off today and I want it on today. Like, that's yeah. something that we don't talk about. And like when you're talking about white supremacy, like, I love that you're doing this with the game. And I love that your foundation founding principles now say, like, we can't be all white. It's just not good. And it's not right. And it's not OK. Right. right? So I think what you're doing, I mean, obviously, you know, it's radical. Right. But like, it's so awesome that you're doing it because it it needs to be done. And I think you're right. I mean, even when I talk to people, you know, and, and this came up, I had a conversation with a manager and um, they, we were talking about, you know, building communities of, or, you know, picking underrepresented populations and giving them like computer access and giving them, you know, these other things so that they can be parts of that pipeline of talent and have a, a better advantage. And you know, he tried to tell me that there are more poor white people than there are black people. And I was like, I can't even have this conversation with you. Like I am, and I like had to get up and walk away in the sense of like, if I argue this, he's going to just, you know, he doesn't see the other side. He He's not at the point where he's ready to see that yet. And so I used that and I just got some statistics and I posted on LinkedIn and I was like, here are some stats about like poorest communities and here are some stats about like, you know, those that are oppressed. And and, like, I just was like, I'm going to turn this and make this into good because this is not an individual that is ready to understand this, this premise yet, because they're defensive in that, like they're feeling like they're being attacked. And I think that that's what happens in terms of when you have those conversations around white supremacy. Right. But it's like, but think about how that's impacting the other side when, when that happens to them too. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what it, I, I'm at a loss to do with what you're saying. You know, the person that, <laughs> there's, there, there's a person in our, uh, in, a, in one of the service clubs that I'm in that is in the boat of this person like that was talking to you is that they're, they're so sure of themselves about something that just isn't true. I don't know what to do anymore. <laughs> I don't, I don't know what to say to that person. The, the one thing that you said that I wanted to make a point of that I thought was interesting is, you know, um, you know, a, a person of color or, or somebody that's um, LGBTQ or, or, you know, what, whatever, however somebody identi- identifies, you know, when people started talking about Black Lives Matter and then pushing against that and saying that, you know, all cops matter and all the thing or blue line or whatever it is. And, I mean, I don't know how people don't get the idea that a a black person cannot be unblack, whereas the person that picked law enforcement as their choice of profession, they selected that. They can not be that tomorrow if they so chose. So that people can't get their head around that is just baffling to me. Yeah. And. And it, you're right. It's incredible. Like they didn't choose that. It, it's something that was chosen for them or decided by, you know, uh, their heritage. Right. Um, and, and to that point, right. I mean, you know, we're all in that learning piece of like, you know, initially it was like, okay, yeah, we, we want to say all lives matter, but then it's like, no, no, no. Like in order to get to all lives matter, right. We have to acknowledge that there is a major problem in our country. Like we have to, we have to work on how to, as you said, deconstruct what this major problem is before yeah. we can even go to like 
all lives matter. You know what I mean? Like we're not there yet. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. So tell me more about, I know you have the radical fucking leadership side. And I know that sort of like is adjacent or like, you know, running parallel with what you're doing at the Y and, and overlapping a lot. But where do you see that going from, from here for you, right? I know you have like a consulting business and such, but how do you want to continue growing that community and making a difference? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that's that's just it, is, is how can we spread these concepts to as many people as possible? Uh, particularly white male leaders. I mean, it, so it's interesting that you say it that way because I, I have thought long before I even launched this, which was just in January, the concept of the way in which that I'm saying to lead from a, a place of bold confidence, you know, in, in current cultures, in some organizations, I might even say many organizations, if somebody was a black or brown bodied person that chose to lead in the way that I'm leading, they'd probably get fired. And so what I'm saying is we need more organizations to change their culture in the way that I'm sort of saying from a radical fucking leadership point of view, so that when they get multicultural leaders within their culture, they can then elevate those voices. So it's it's a little hard. I mean, I, I think that it's it's a double-edged sword in in some cases because mm -hmm. there's a lot of people. I mean, I I think that I I don't need people to lead just like me, but I need people to lead with the concept of human centeredness, and I think that that's where the belonging achievement relationships come from, incorporating that concept and then making it your own. So whether you're you know, a black person, a brown person, and, you know, however it is that you identify. Um, I think that that's important to come at it from a human centered point of view. Like I said, you know, the why work is about people. Well, leadership's totally about people. Yeah. And, and I would say selfishly, I want you to take radical fucking leadership, but I want you to go to all these companies that are doing it wrong and be like, okay, we're going to put this bar mentality into place and you're going to start to do it right. And I'm going to make you play. Oh, shoots. Because like, this is the way you <laughs> right? need to do it. Right. Like this is like, I selfishly want you to like stop working at the Y and just go and travel the world and do yeah, this totally. one thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I, I could totally get behind that. Um, well, I, the other thing that is so interesting about what you said about stop working at the Y, I think the Y is the perfect vehicle actually to deliver that thing. Because, and this is what's so frustrating a little bit about the why, is that we're afraid to take that stand. We are a human development organization. We stand for body, spirit, mind, and body. And so that's why it's so frustrating. That's, I mean, that's, you hit it on the head. It's like, I, I shouldn't need to leave the why. What I should be doing is getting every single YMCA in the country. I mean, we have like 22 million members. And we should be activating our membership base to, to create communities that are focused on belonging achievement relationships. We're part with me, this why, our why, is part of this thing called the Equity Coalition um, that really at the foundation of the, of the whole idea of the Equity Coalition is that, you know, after George Floyd's murder, 
you know, just like any other part of the country, a lot of entities went down the DEI anti-racism road. Some people, some organizations hiring like DEI titled jobs. And what we were noticing was that in all, all the entities, whether it was the cities or the municipalities, you know, other nonprofits, whether it was corporations, whether it was universities, you know, everybody had their way that they were doing anti-racism work or DEI work. And the Equity Coalition came together and said, this is great, but nobody's talking to each other. I mean, we're all doing it internally. And, and there was probably a, a good rationale for, you know, focusing internally first. Um, but at some point, what the Equity Coalition is saying is, let's create a community that is you know, rooted in this concept of belonging, achievement, relationships, essentially, so that when people come here, that they stay, they want to raise their family here, that they can see themselves back to your representation idea. Like if you come to get a job at one of our companies in, in our county, um, the chances are, if you are a person that identifies as a BIPOC professional in whatever way that that is, you might be one of the only ones in your company. And so the equity coalition is looking at, you know, how, you know, ERGs, employee resource groups or affinity groups, you know, how those are the thing. But if you only have one or two people in your company, that's not much of an affinity group. So then our theory was that we would create like regional affinity groups so that, and then the why, the why along with the equity coalition is kind of holding you know, being that liaison to then create community within that. So it's an interesting concept. That you yeah, have. I really like that concept. And, and to your point, right? I mean, maybe you just don't like, you're not the leader at the Y anymore. Maybe now you're like bringing, like you said, like you're building a community of Ys and you're doing this consulting sort of idea with the Y of like, here's how we talk about, you know, white supremacy and anti-racism <laughs> And we're going to play the so shoots game, but more or less, like we're also going to create founding principles in yours in your states that say you ha can't just have whiteboards, right? And like yeah. start with the whys, but then as you said, like use the why model and say now we're going to come into corporate like for profit businesses and we're going to deploy this model because yeah. again, like I just feel like if if more companies did you know did take this approach of like or the model that you're you're sharing, right? Mm -hmm. I think that we would see a lot better workplaces and a lot less racism <laughs> i agree so yeah i don't know who on this podcast is going to hear this but yeah you can hire me i'll come hang out with you for sure <laughs> remember I, I i also uh brew beer so that's another selling point if you don't like uh raising the bar you like you brew beer as well i do <laughs> You're like, if you're, if you're not quite ready, I'll brew you some beer and then we can have this conversation. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you do some one-on-one -on -one consulting. Last time we chatted, you had shared a little bit about that. So in terms of the one-on-one -on -one consulting, right, what does that look like? Or who are you looking to consult and help? Yeah. I mean, I've, I, I, I mean, really anyone that wants to lead from a position of, um, you know, human, human centered, I guess, work, leadership work. Uh, you could be, you know, a new manager, you could be a, a seasoned CEO, you could be confused about how to give and receive feedback. We just did a thing the other day, I, I, and I think I'm going to do a, a, a little course on it about um, feedback. Fascinating 
just a lot of I've done a lot on just feedback in general. And one of the guiding principles that we have is, you know, feedback is a gift. And but the funny thing that I say is if feedback is a gift, then why does it feel so shitty when I get it? (laughs) (laughs) So and it really is about feedback is a gift, but it's really and and it's it's not even about the, the sender of the feedback. It's really about how you receive it. Mm-hmm. And there's these triggers that we go into that, you know, the truth trigger, there's a relationship trigger, and then there's a, an identity trigger. And so when you think about you as the receiver, if you don't believe the feedback that's being given to you, then you're not going to be as receptive. If, if you're getting the feedback with somebody that you don't respect, then you're probably not going to listen to it as much. And then the identity one is really about, like, if I think that I'm the world's best communicator. And then somebody tells me that my communication style didn't work for them. Then now I'm like crushed. So, um, you know, I'm thinking about doing a little mini course on how and managers have to give feedback all the time. And then when you think about a manager, whether you're, you know, the first year in your job or you're three years into your job or you're the, you know, whatever it is, however long you've been doing it, feedback gets people like in all kinds of nuts, like crazy nuts. And and then you think about that there's different types of feedback. There's, you know, appreciation, there's coaching, there's, you know, formal evaluation. So I'm thinking about doing a little mini course on on that as an example. As an HR person, I love that idea because I can't tell you the number of people that are like, I had my review and my manager said, and I'm like, did they say that? Or is that what you heard? Right? Like, and let's, and and let's go and chat with them and figure out why they're saying that or why that's happening, right? But I think to your point, right? How can we how can we better communicate? How can we better provide feedback? And and as sure. you said, like not necessarily internalize it in the sense of like this isn't true or being defensive. It's like okay, but how do I take this as truth and now make change? Because that's okay, even if yeah. even if for some reason it's not true, right? Accept it as truth. And then make change because there's always room. I love that. I love that too. Pretend, pretend that this is true. I would say. <laughs> Except pretend that, you know? they, pretend that they were right. Um, yeah. So think about all the people that you would like to receive feedback for, and then do another list of all the people that you have trouble when you hear feedback <laughs> and sit with that for like just five minutes. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So tell our listeners where they can find you. What platforms are you on? How can they yeah. locate you if they wanted to reach out? I mean, basic, I, I'm sure you'll give the con, uh, context out, but uh, LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me. That's the easiest way. Go on LinkedIn, Kyle Kronk, uh, DM me, would love to connect. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a big sales guy. I'm not selling anything. I mean, if, if people want to get better at leadership, get better at working with people, uh, I can certainly help. Um, but there's a ton of people that can help too. And it's, and it's really about what, you know, what are you ready to do? I have this one question that I ask people in this, uh, what I would consider a leadership audit is, um, what are you willing to invest to, to get what you say you want? Mm, so I'm a like big, that. I'm a big believer in questions every Wednesday. I, so you wouldn't even need to hire me. You wouldn't even need to pay me a dime. All you need to do is go to my LinkedIn page and go. And every Wednesday I do one, well, not one question, but every Wednesday I do, it's radical Wednesday, I say. And it's, and it's powerful questions. There's a guy named Peter Block that 
he wrote this amazing book called Community. And within it, it talks about belonging. And he says that um, questions are way more powerful than answers. And that, and that good questions, the artful question is it's personal, ambiguous, and stressful. <laughs> and so I, I, I don't even know how many questions I've asked. I've probably done at least 20. You could go there and you would have all the coaching. You would never need to pay for coaching again. Probably. <laughs> so like I said, I'm not much of a sales guy. There's a t- tremendous amount of value sitting in my LinkedIn profile. So go there. You're like, just go and look at it. <laughs> go and, and try Replicate to answer it, some do of those, it. Yeah, go and try to answer some of those questions. Um, well, I always end every podcast by asking my favorite question, which is around, um, so Maya Angelou, one of my p- favorite poets of all time, um, cr- has a quote that says, I've learned that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. And I'd like for you to share a time when that was true for you. Super easy, super easy. Um, when I was working at, at this camp, one of the things that you had to do um, is you would go on these island trips. So you would take half your cabin out to an island off the main camp. And at nine, one and nine, they did these radio checks to make sure that you and the kids were still alive, which is probably a good idea. But I, I'll never forget this. I was 15 years old. I had just, the only thing that I had done is I went to staff training for a week. And then the kids came. And now like three days or a day after the kids got there, we go off to this island trip. And so, you know, as a new rookie counselor, they didn't let me touch the radio. But for some reason, <laughs> at nine o'clock at night, they said it was my turn to do radio checks. So I was like, I couldn't believe that I could be on this walkie talkie. So first of all, like my eyes are like this. And so what happens on this radio check is that the the main person back at camp goes through all the islands and he names the islands. He says, you know, and I know the name of the island that I'm on. So when it's my, when he calls my island, um, I say what I say. And then he says, oh, Kyle, good to hear your voice. Have a good night. And I mean, it gave it just saying that right now gave me goosebumps. I mean, I was seen. He knew my name. I don't know how in the hell this guy knew my name over a radio. I mean, there's probably 400 staff at this camp. And he and, you know, he's got a ton of staff out there. He he knows that it could be, you know, one of four or five people on the rate on the other end of the radio. Um, So, I mean, how he made me feel was seen, heard, valued. I mattered and I'll never forget that. So I, and I incorporate that everywhere. So somebody's name and how to pronounce it correctly is gold. As somebody who has a name like that, I value, I value and appreciate that. (laughs) So true. I was always worried about screwing up your name. And that's why I put it phonetically in my zoom because I'm like, I am so sick of everybody pronouncing it wrong. Um, but it's Alisa, right? So I put Alisa, it with ease yes. so that people got it. Um, yeah. But I appreciate that you have that approach of like, this is really important. We need to pay, make people feel seen and heard and, and all of that. I love your example. Because as a 15-year-old, you remembered that all these years later. Oh my God, yeah. And I'm like ancient now. I can barely even see what your words are <laughs> on that screen. I'm so pissed. I'm tell, I tell my, uh, 
you know, my colleagues here, like all, it was like one day and it was fairly recently, like a month or so ago, like one day, all of a sudden I couldn't see anymore. And so like, I'm doing shit with my phone, my son, who's uh, a junior in high school. Um, I was looking at my phone and I did this thing. Like I put it away from my face. He said, dad, I've never thought of you as old until just right now. <laughs> He like thanks, son. Thanks. I said, you fucker. <laughs> awesome. Well, I thank you so much for being with us, um, Kyle. And as always, uh, lead with empathy, act with kindness. Whoa! That that should be a shirt. <laughs> Have a great day, y'all. Peace. Thank you for listening to All People Podcast. If you enjoyed our show, I'd love for you to subscribe and leave a five star review. The work doesn't end here. If you want to keep the conversation going, find me on LinkedIn or Facebook or visit my website, apeoplepartnerllc.com. Lead with empathy and act with kindness. Have a great day.